Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School, here on the No Film School podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, my guest is Michael Jacobs, a documentary filmmaker who recently made a doc that's coming to Quibi very soon called Blackballed. If you haven't heard of Blackballed, it's the story of the Los Angeles Clippers when the owner at the time of the team, Donald Sterling, made some racist comments that were recorded and released publicly and just created a complete nightmare for the players on the team, um, the league, the National Basketball Association, or the NBA. <laughs> I don't know why I went with National Basketball Association there. I was feeling fancy. Um, and the, uh, the story as told by the players in this doc is really unique. You haven't seen something like this before. They are extremely candid and honest, and the things they're talking about are really powerful. Um, and this is something that goes far beyond basketball, of course, and cuts to what the point of documentary filmmaking is and can be in the first place. Michael talks honestly and openly with us about how he approached this content. It's a tricky thing to do. Um, and how he uh, delivered to Quibi, which is also apparently a little tricky um, because of the formatting and such, um, what they shot on, how they shot it, his his favorite documentaries and his style of, of telling stories this way. Uh, there's a lot to take from this interview, I think, and he gives a lot of insights into how you might approach documentary filmmaking. But you really should listen because uh, this is just an, a, a great story and it's it's a great um, look into what um, what goes on in the mind of the documentary filmmaker when approaching a topic and uh, and doing the best job possible telling that story. Enjoy. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm really excited. I am a huge basketball fan. <laughs> I awesome. remember everything about this when it happened. I'm an Angelino, not a Clippers fan. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm an Angelino and uh I, you know, it was kind of it was fascinating to relive all of this. Um I want to talk about so much of it. Um but I guess the place to start, what drew you to the story? What got you started on this film? Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so one of my longtime producing partners, Chris Gary, um, he showed me a sizzle with Doc Rivers telling this story about the first time that he had to go and face his players in a team meeting after the tape had come out. And I just couldn't believe um, just just the honesty and sincerity in the way that Doc retold this story. And then it just dawned on me that, you know, I don't think audiences knew just, you know, behind the scenes, how intense of an experience this was, you know, for the players. And so um, my producers at the time said, you know, we, we have Doc on board and it looks like we can get to Chris Paul as well. So we're going to have access to, these coaches and players who for the first time ever are going to share their side of the Donald Sterling scandal. And so, you know, as, as a doc filmmaker, of course, anytime you're given access um, to a subject like that, to a subject, um, you know, that's 
going to be given the opportunity to share their side of the story about, you know, a, a historic event, really a watershed event. I just knew immediately that I had to, to pounce on this opportunity to, to direct. And you had, you'd been, you directed some sports docs in the past. You'd done some, so this was sort of, they came to you sort of like, we think you're the right guy. We have this in mind. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I I have done a couple um, ESPN 30 for 30s. And in, in some of those 30 for 30s, we explore that intersection between race and uh in one case lgbtq sexuality you know elements around professional sports um and i'm also you know finishing up production on a documentary for disney plus um and marvel comics about you know pop culture and identity and um especially specifically related to race and and gender and sexuality and so um, my producer, Chris Gary, just knew that I'd be a really good fit for a project like this. Um, and it was important to, you know, make sure that in entering a project like this, we were really thinking of the culture story and that we were going to use the basketball story, of course, as a window into what happened, but make sure that we also focused on the cultural elements um, sure. l- like we've done in our past work. What was your experience of the event as a human being at the time versus your experience as a filmmaker? Did it change your way of approaching it? How did you experience it when it actually happened? Great question. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because 2014 is what, six years ago, right? But it feels like a hundred years ago. Yes. Especially now. Yeah. Last week feels like a hundred years ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So true. So we're in the weirdest time warp right now. Um, But yeah, even, even in making this film, um, it was, you know, like most people, I was, you know, watching the NBA playoffs and paying attention to, you know, all of the heightened drama of, you know, the first round of the playoffs and looking at these teams and these players and, you know, just super invested in it as a sports fan. And and then this tape comes out and you listen to this tape and it, you just cannot believe your ears. You're, I, you know, like most people, I was horrified, disgusted, but I knew nothing about Donald Sterling. I didn't even know the name of the owner of the Clippers. I had no idea he was a team owner. I didn't know anything about him or his past. Um, you know, I looked, I looked him up afterwards and I saw, you know, that there had been some past misdeeds and transgressions around, you know, race in, in relationship to his housing practices, his discriminatory housing practices. But I didn't dive much deeper at that point. And, you know, the playoffs went on. And then, of course, Silver comes out and, and bans him like five days later. And so it sort of kind of put a quick little bow on the whole thing. And then we watched the rest of the NBA finals and then tucked it back into the, you know, the, the historic moments in sports that come and go. Um, And then this project comes up and I think initially I sort of was like, wow, I wonder if there's enough there, there for like doing this, you know, feature length type of approach. Um, And the moment, like I said, I, I saw Doc Rivers, you know, sizzle that the producers had put together. And the moment we got on the phone with Chris Paul and the moment we talked to, um, you know, Jameel Hill. And the moment we talked to uh, Professor Todd Boyd at USC, I realized there were so many layers to this. And, and most importantly, there was so much of this story that had never been told before, um, you know, from both the player's perspective and then also um, just reminding um, 
audiences, and I guess myself as the filmmaker here, I sort of was reminded of of what America was like in 2014 and what we were going through as a country with an African-American president, with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so there was so much kind of baked into this moment um, that I, I sort of rediscovered it with fresh eyes as a filmmaker. And it was really helpful, right? Because as a documentary filmmaker, these projects are, are really, ac you know, acts of discovery. And so mm, there, there yeah. was so much rediscovery and, and first time discovery um, you know, about this whole process. Yeah. Did, um, it's funny because I had such a different, you know, I, I remember experiencing at the time, but to me it was sort of like, as it was happening, it was like, Oh, Donald Sterling again. You know, he was, he was such a known, uh, in my world, in my experience in LA, it was him being a slumlord and his treatment of people and the way he spoke to some of his players, even there was just this awareness that he was this, awful person a cancer to this franchise you know and it was but i i also think it's fascinating because um even if there wasn't you know so many layers as there are this sort of documentary does the job of preserving the moment in time for educational purposes or for like planting the flag there to say hey this happened this was a really big deal this was an important moment and this is how the people in it responded and I was sort of drawn to that, especially because, you know, there's this other documentary out there right now about basketball <laughs> that people have been talking about. <laughs> but it's not about um, it, it, it goes very quickly past something you cover, which is the the famous um, Republicans buy sneakers Two thing with Michael Jordan. This is about athletes putting themselves on the line to some extent and what that means and the and the legacy of that. Um, and I, you know, I'm white. And so I always feel like far be it for me to say so-and-so should be a spokesperson for racial inequality. Like that's a lot to ask of someone. Right. And I feel like this is like a really tough topic. And this, this documentary does such an amazing job, um, opening it up. And I think some of your filmmaking style is part of how, because they look at us, these, these athletes like DeAndre Jordan, um, Chris Paul and JJ Redick, who's, who's also white and, um, Doc Rivers, of course, but they're, they're looking at us telling us it's different, right? It feels differently. Can you tell me about the choice to do it that way? And also, you know, the, the power, the importance, the, the moment of them speaking out about it. I felt like it was really important in approaching the subjects that, First and foremost, I'm just going to be a listener. Um, you know, I, I'm also white and I have never experienced racism, you know. And so there have been moments in my life as you know, a Jewish American from Boulder, Colorado. There are moments in my life where I've, you know, certainly felt anti-Semitism. It's funny, though, because like, yeah, I'm also I'm also Jewish. And the only way I can kind of understand it <laughs> is yeah. to think like, do I want to have to be forced to speak? On, would I ever be comfortable? being forced to speak on behalf of all who are Jewish. Like right. if we were in a, if I was in a position where I had to be like, that's so much weight. And I think what I like to just kind of reiterate or clarify my point is I can't fathom the position they're in, but when they're looking in your eyes, the way you shot this doc, the way you, you did this, yeah. they're telling us you can kind of feel like it, that, that hits home in a yeah. way that m might not otherwise. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
firstly, I, I really appreciate you pointing that out and, and recognizing that. And, and, you know, myself and the filmmaking team, you know, we felt really strongly about trying to figure out a way to capture these first person retellings in a way that was sort of direct, um, intimate, and really a conversation to be had, you know, directly with the audience. And, and that felt important for a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, like I said, this was the first time that most of these players were going to be talking about, you know, what happened to them and what they had to go through. And then, of course, we're also going to be talking about race and we're going to be talking about race both as professional athletes, but also in their personal lives. And so right. I felt like what what we, you know, what we needed to try to do was come up with a filmmaking, you know, capture device that would provide the right kind of um, space in the interview environment, the right kind of intimacy, and ultimately the right kind of experience for the audience. And so that's why we went to the Interatron, you know, which is a um, filmmaking tool invented by Errol Morris, the master documentarian. And it's a, it's a two-way camera system. And so the interview subject is looking directly into the lens. But when they look directly into the lens, they're actually seeing a teleprompter image of, of me. And so what, what happens is we, we end up having um, a conversation, right? And the interview is conducted one-to-one. Uh, -one. And so they're looking into the lens, but they're looking at me and I'm, I'm looking into my monitor and I'm looking right back at them. And in doing so, you know, ultimately they're looking directly at the audience. And you remove you remove any trace of the interviewer, and therefore the audience gets to experience um, these subjects in a one to one direct um, relationship, and it, it just felt like the right um, tool for the job. And it was super important to also, in most cases, the people we were interviewing are high profile professional athletes and celebrities, right? And so they're very accustomed, you know, they're, they're very savvy. They're very, you know, they're used to being on camera. They're used to giving press conferences. I wanted to try to remove as much of that, um, experience of their past, um, interviews and, and media appearances as possible and just boil it down to like a true one-to-one -one conversation. And so that's why this, um, filmmaking tool also was just like the right, you know, the right fit for, for achieving that kind of experience. Yeah, it's interesting because we're so familiar with these people in press conference settings and we cut to you, we, <laughs> the film cuts to Chris Paul suddenly in a press conference after a game or Doc Rivers in a media session. I mean, it's such a different experience for an audience and we have seen them that way so much. And to see it juxtaposed with the way you use the interviews is so powerful because suddenly like we're reminded that there's this removal happening when they speak to us that way through a media room session, as opposed to just directly in the camera talking to you. And, and it's also interesting because it, it does sort of remove the interviewer from the process, but I feel like in a way it, it puts them more into the process because it puts us in, in the space with them. So that's kind of just from a filmmaking standpoint, a, yeah. a really interesting technique. Yeah. I think it was effective because, you you know, you have um, for people who haven't seen it yet and hopefully will, you have like the people we've mentioned. But there's also 
the mayor of Los Angeles, the CEO of Disney. <laughs> There's oh, yeah. a lot of people who are like very media savvy, like you say, but also we only experience them in these certain settings, you know, and to take to strip it down and to have them look at us and tell us like, frankly, something about the experience was um, was really unique. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up to just, you know, quick anecdote to that. But, you know, it was one thing to sort of, um, you know, put the players in these sort of isolated environments on these courts where, you know, once this camera system is set up, they're alone, right? They're, they're literally alone, just looking directly into the lens and directly into my face. Um, so it, it but they was, feel like just to just to clarify, they're yeah. looking into the lens, but they feel like they're looking at you. So totally. Like, right. Totally. Okay. And so, you know, in, in addition to the players, like you mentioned, we were also getting some of these other high profile, um, you know, personalities and CEOs and executives. Um, we intentionally did not tell them that this was going to be our interview technique because we really wanted to create that sense of a this this is going to be a direct one-to-one conversation and if we overly prepare you for the idea that you're going to be looking directly at the audience it, i was worried that it would perhaps like throw them off or over prepare them like i kind of wanted them to be um literally walked onto set and then walked into you know the camera setup and the only thing they're looking at is me and everybody else is gone. The DP's nowhere to be found. The sound guy's out of the way. Um, all the gaffers and lighting team, they're all offset. Everybody's offset at that point. So when the subject comes and sits down, the only person they're looking at and speaking to and, and aware of peripherally it is me. And it just is such an effective tool, especially for the media savvy and high profile subjects. It, it puts them in a completely different experience than they're used to. Did you? Yeah, I'm. I'm curious to know what like you've shot. You've shot with and without this tool. How do you feel it helps in terms of the content you get out of the interview? Like, what does it? It changes obviously the experience um, and the intimacy factor. But do they get? Quick, do you get quicker to something more human? Do you find that, you know, the questions, the interaction is different? Like, how does it change it as an interviewer? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, for, for, for me and my interview technique, um, it's invaluable because so much of what I do is being a really good listener Right. Which I know sounds like kind of reductive, but but it's true. Right. It, like yeah. fund, fundamentally, my job is to be a really good listener. And particularly in these instances where, you know, I'm a white filmmaker talking to a lot of African-American men about race in this country. Yeah, so, so <laughs> that I, must have been a really difficult barrier. Just is. I mean, in terms of like, am I authorized to tell your story this way or to help you tell the story, you know? And I want to talk about that too, but yeah. please continue with. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that was really, um, you know, I was obviously very consciously aware of that dynamic, you know, on set. And so in the Interatron setup where you're able to just make direct eye contact with the subject and it's unfiltered, they're not looking at anything else. You're, you're really just looking at one another. And so there's, there's a real, um, I think there's a, le a real honesty to the type of conversation that can be had in that setup. And especially around difficult subject matter, I, I think it allows that conversation to feel more authentic. You know, I, again, kind of an, a reductive overused word, but it, it, it is a very authentic experience to be looking directly at somebody and having an open, honest 
conversation. Um, and oftentimes when it's about difficult subject matters, um, I think you can get some really, you know, powerful emotive, you know, captures that way because they're looking directly at my face and not really paying much attention to looking off camera or looking really even at a camera system, you know, cause like you said, I've, I've, I've of course shot plenty of interviews where I'm sitting next to the camera or below the camera or near the camera. Um, and that just, that just becomes an element that's in the way there's sort of a consciousness of the filmmaking capture apparatus that becomes a part of the storytelling experience. And it can be quite effective. And I, I've, you know, used, um, that, technique you know to to effect on other projects but again in this case i i just wanted to remove everything that we could to just have the most immediate you know one-to-one -one, you know direct conversation and so for my interviewing style it, it is just a really um it, it really is a good fit for me it's also just i can be a little bit more loose and conversational because there's it's just less awkward physically yeah right? yeah no i mean i keep thinking about how um you know, we're talking about very media savvy, camera aware people. Um, the camera is, you know, there's there's the camera as it is to the filmmaker, and when you're behind it or to the side of it or wherever, and there's or in it as you were, but there's also the camera for the subject, which can be kind of like a black hole, yeah, <laughs> like totally. like it can be this all sucking force that terrifies people, or that they play to, or that. And audiences don't always understand. And this is such a almost a philosophical conversation about the role of the camera in documentary filmmaking. But audiences don't always understand how much of a role the camera's presence plays in the subject's behavior, oh, right? Yeah. Because it's subtle and it's and it becomes subtext almost. But you know, there's fly on the wall documentary style, or there's like there's reality TV now where it's clearly like performative, and I'm fascinated by this way of getting somebody who is so familiar with working the camera to live like interrelate with the camera you know absolutely it's it's really really interesting and you're right it does get into the sort of philosophy of um documentary and what and what really foundationally what what documentary is and and how it serves truth you know and um yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts further on that. Like, what is your approach in general? And like, what, you know, do you have like documentaries you sort of cite as like, that's the, that's the way I, I would like to make them or that's the style I prefer? Because there are like the documentary, I, I think again, of The Last Dance too, which is a very specific person's version of what happened. And we've already seen in, in the last, you know, few days, a lot of people come out and say, that's his version of the story. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that's not my version of the story. Yeah. And it's interesting when a documentary is made by its subject effectively, right? Well, it's, it, yeah. sorry, it wasn't made by him, but he produced it. Right? Yeah. Well, um, cer certainly there was a, a, a large uh, exercise of control that Mr. Jordan had over that film. And in, in our case, that was not the case. You know, while we um, needed the participation of these athletes. And, you know, we were, you know, we, we made them very aware of how we were approaching the subject. None of them saw the finished product until we were done. So there was, there was no, um, oversight, yeah. oversight at all, um, in our case. And, and it's such a touchy thing. They put so much trust in your hands, right? To because totally. This, 
such a powerful thing and such an important moment. And you, I, I like just speaking to the responsibility you felt and the barriers there. I'm curious, <laughs> did you screen it at one point to sort of get a sense or how did you, how did you navigate that? Well, I had such a great, you know, we had such a great team on this of um, collaborators um, from the producers to the editors to, you know, people that I, you know, trust about um, a subject like this and making sure that the material was going to, you know, be presented in a way that felt true, that felt true to the experiences described that served the narrative, you know, and, you know, in this case, also, we were working, you know, with Quibi. And so we had their executive notes as well. And I would say, you know, by and large, this was a very um, positive collaborative experience, where a lot of different types of people, race, color, creed, gender, informed a lot of how we went about, you know, putting it together. And, right. and as a result, I feel very fortunate to, to yeah. have, you know, so just straight up, you know, one of my producers is black. And so, and we've worked together for years and we have, you know, basically every time we ever talk, we talk about race and we talk about, <laughs> we talk about filmmaking and we talk about documentary and the responsibilities and the moral gray area. And, um, you know, and so, you know, I knew that I could have a open and honest dialogue with him both during the shoot and in the post-production process in order to, you know, make sure that, you know, he felt like perspective wise, yeah. yeah, perspective wise, we were treating some of the material around race in a way that, that, you know, felt comfortable to him. Now, again, he doesn't represent all African-American men right. in this, in this right. country. He's also not a professional athlete. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like you, you take these bits and pieces and the, the, you know, the woman who runs unscripted at Quibi, Jahan Robinson, she's an African-American woman. Um, I treated her notes with great regard for a variety, for a variety of reasons, first and foremost, as a storyteller and as a, as an executive who has good taste and a good understanding of, of story, but then of course issues around race and, and, you know, so all of these um, elements, I think sort of supported me uh, as a director, who's not a director of color, who is right. talking, talking about these issues. I think it, I think what you're saying just highlights for me, the, your answer there and, and describing your the team, the extended team and the Quibi team is that diversity is valuable not just because, you know, we're trying to check these boxes or companies are trying to diversify their, their staffs or whatever. It's valuable because it's perspective, because you only consider certain perspectives if you come from a certain background. So it's like having, it's, it's like all your cooks in the kitchen can bring different things to the table that you wouldn't otherwise consider instead of having something that's more homogenous. And there's even studies that have been done to show that it's like, you know, if you get a bunch of same typed people in a room, you're going to get same typed response <laughs> like ideas I, like so it's valuable to get that mix because you can feel like hey i can trust this team to point out things that i may not be able to see that is 100 percent correct and it couldn't be more true about this project um and it couldn't be more true about as a as a description of the way in which i like to work and want to continue to work from here on out. This was the most diverse project, both at the production assistant level to the executive level, um, you know, both race and gender um, and sexuality. You know, it was just an extremely dynamic mix of people that came together 
um, for a shared goal. And, you know, these are, these are all these little things that often, um, you know, don't get talked about on, on a documentary or on a project, but are invaluable. Right. Um, Cause there's and, an impact. Yeah. There's a, there's a domino effect. I think, Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. And, and I, and it was really important to us, you know, our, our line producer, Lisette, you know, she was adamant about making sure that, you know, our crew, you know, was a representation of, you know, the way in which we want to work collaboratively and creatively um, as a diverse body of people coming together to make something meaningful. Um, so it was super important to us. And I think it absolutely affected and impacted the project in subtle ways and in direct ways for, for the betterment. And and real quick, just to back up, um, I just wanted to make quick mention of, um, you know, my first ever documentary was Verite. You know, and so I was a I was a pure verite yeah. guy, guy when I first started out. I you know I was a Maisel's Brothers aficionado. I didn't go to I didn't I go to film, yeah. <laughs> so, oh good, yeah. They're amazing. I didn't go to film school, and so um, the only way that I was going to learn how to you know actually make anything was to kind of just find a subject, show up, and start to disappear into the background. And I and I you know, watched all the Maisel's films and I, I wasn't familiar with their work until I was out of college. So I was really later to the um, appreciation under understanding um, of documentary history uh, until I was in my mid twenties, even really my late twenties. And, and so, you know, for me, the Maisel's were sort of the best example of what I saw as really interesting character studies and a really interesting process of you know capturing real life um but i was also obsessed with narrative and so um my first ever documentary called audience of one was really that combination of a really great pre-built narrative a, a a real life subject that had narrative structure inherently embedded in it um with the true observational approach but with that observational approach i realized that i was also participating Right. right. It's and, the, um, the, exactly. other, the observed thing changes because of the observer. Right. Exactly. And I was I was I was filming a bunch of people who were performative, very naturally performative. They were a Pentecostal church and they were also transforming their church into a film production company to set out and make a biblical sci-fi movie, which wow. sounds which so sounds now it sounds fascinating. <laughs> oh it, yeah, it was. It is it's as crazy as it sounds. Um and so my first project was really driven by those rules of of following the verite um approach and 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 yet I also like I said had such great narrative um structure built into this that um when I finished that project um I sort of said to myself okay I loved Verite and I will always love Verite. And I do think it's probably the purest form of documentary, even though the very nature of being there to record does change truth and reality. Right. Um, but like, I, the closest I, we can get, maybe. I, I do think so. I do think so. And even in this day and age where everybody's a walking Verite filmmaker with their, their cameras <laughs> and there's just a, a culture of, there's a culture of performance in everybody's house. Right. And so, right. um, you know, and that I was zoom too, right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Um, so, you know, but when I finished that, I just knew that I wanted to, um, to stick with narrative structure, but just try a different technique. And that's where I tried to hone my craft as, as an interviewer, 
um, and really as a good listener, and then work on figuring out what was going to be the best opportunity for me to explore these different um, techniques for interviewing. And that's what led me to the, you know, Errol Morris documentaries and seeing his work and seeing that again, that one-to-one -one conversation with the audience. And that's when I sort of pivoted more towards um, interview driven documentary, but still with this obsession with narrative. So I have not made another Verite project, mostly because I lack the patience for it. You know, you, you kind of have to have gold and a ton of patience and great access. And that's just a hard thing to find. And it requires a ton of, um, you know, it's a marathon of work. Um, and, but that's why some of the great Verite films out there right now, I, I have just tremendous admiration for, um, but for me, and I guess really more my lack of, of patience and, <laughs> and other, but you found a way to weave a narrative, a very a fascinating Verite tool really into something that's direct and like two camera. Like that's sort of yeah. what's interesting about it is it, is it weaves in something that's got a Verite quality. You, you know, you mentioned Quibi a little bit and Quibi is like a new, it's a new thing in every way. It's like a new platform. It's a new stock. It's a new company. It's a new, you talked about how, what it was like working with them. I'm curious, like what the experiences was, what the relationship is and what Quibi as a platform sort of allows. We haven't spoken to a filmmaker who's worked, who's, who's had projects on Quibi yet. One of the unique opportunities with um, with Quibi was that we were going to make two versions of the film. You know, one version that had to work in a you know yes. traditional horizontal yes. <laughs> sixteen by nine world, for you know lack of a a better descriptor, and also simultaneously work in a vertical nine by sixteen uh, experience. So it just presented some technical challenges at the outset, just around how we were going to frame um, the interview material and anything else we shot, right? Because you need right. to make sure that you are protecting, you both. know, both orientations. Yeah. And that is also another reason why we felt like the Interatron direct-to-camera setup would, would be a good option here because we could place our subject center frame and have them look directly into the audience and be really well protected for both um, vertical and horizontal orientation. Um, but then you go and you shoot some B-roll, right? So in addition to shooting the interviews with each of the athletes, we also wanted to shoot them playing basketball because we needed some visual storytelling assets and elements that, you know, were not going to be covered in archival. There were a lot of things about this uh, story that, of course, don't exist in archival. They were behind the scenes conversations. They were private conversations. They were locker room conversations. So I know at the very least I wanted to try to capture the players, even just dribbling, shooting some layups, walking around the court, whatever it was that we could you know, make maximum use of our time with them. And you also did some really beautiful stuff with like things that didn't happen on a court, but you set them on a court. <laughs> like yeah. A style of like, it's a really interesting thing that happens throughout the story that um, visually I, I found, I found unique, like a phone ringing. <laughs> but it's you. like, or like yeah. a set. Yeah. Or a lobby. I think the lobby was one of them. Anyway, very, it was very cool. But yeah, no, thank you so much. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll go into that in just a second, but, and, so first and foremost, right, the players, you know, we, we leave this interview environment where we had such a good job of protecting, you know, both the nine by 16 and 16 by nine aspect ratio, right, for, for both versions of how right. people were going to watch the film. But then they get up and they go play basketball. And now all of a sudden the camera's moving and they're moving. And so they're constantly moving in and out of like the safe frame you know, for, for Got being yeah. and, and so you have to sort of make adjustments in post-production and do a lot of, you know, 
panning and scanning in order to make that image fit in in the in the vertical because very quickly like if you could just imagine um a basketball player dribbling past you on camera they are going to very quickly move out of frame in a vertical orientation so you have to do a lot of like delicate panning and scanning um you know throughout and the second uh interesting thing that we did like you mentioned was that we knew that because there was only so much um archival available for some of the storytelling we decided to build all these like mini sets on these basketball courts. And, you know, we, we used Lars von Trier's Dogville as a reference for, uh, yeah, a, right. Yeah, for that sort of raw kind of loose set um, that we, you know, felt like would be, you know, an interesting way to visually illustrate some of these moments. So I wasn't positive it was going to work, but it was a really fun experiment that ultimately did work really well and gave us, um, I think just that extra visual experience for the audience. Um, and then also just, it really helped from a storytelling perspective because we didn't have to exclusively rely on archival. And again, when there wasn't archival, uh, you know, what do you do? So it was, it was, um, there's was some very awful. dramatic, visually dramatic tableaus, really the lighting, yeah. the setup. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. I, I, I appreciate it. And I had a great director of photography who, um, who was instrumental in helping, you know, design, the lighting and the camera and was really such a great collaborator josh weinstein um, who's also a director in his own right uh, he's the director most recently of uh, the narrative film menashe um, and so and he and i've worked together for years as well and um you know we just came up with this sort of language for um, both making sure that we could get it to work for quibi you know in this new storytelling platform and then also be something that we felt like was just really interesting visually you know standing on its own what did you guys shoot it on we shot it on the Sony Venice, um, which which was a camera that neither of us had had much experience with prior. Um, it's a you know it's a large format digital cinema camera, um, and it presented a lot of technical challenges, which you know J Josh and the camera team could speak to. Um, but it the the look I think is you know really impressive, and we were super happy with it. Um, so yeah no it's great i mean it, lo it looks great and i'm also curious just because of you know does quibi have uh requirements in terms of media or camera or you know like those kinds of things was that a part of the i, I know obviously the six the vertical and horizontal was a big thing yeah they that you know they were most adamant about you know making sure that we were able to really you know effectively capture and, and really center frame you know so you had you know, coverage for both vertical and horizontal. Um, and then I think their basic specs were minimum 4K, you know, so it had to be high resolution. And then of course you're, you're grateful for the high resolution when you go to pan and scan. Yeah, right? So, right. And it was super, super helpful. And then when you go to color correction as well, just having all that extra information. Um, and that's part of why we also picked these basketball courts, right? We, we wanted to, um, you know, shoot is is sort of dramatically as we could, right? And so, we, and moody, and sort of cinematically, and so we we picked these super wide frames on basketball courts, but then placed the subjects really close to the lens, so you kind of have this wide and close experience. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I know we we're sort of running over, so I'll get you out on the, on the last couple things. Do you have a favorite documentary? I mean, maybe I, I have a feeling maybe I know the answer, but I'm curious <laughs> nonetheless. That's such a hard one. But I mean, so, 
Ooh, top. T- uh, why don't I answer with like a top three? That and works. We'll, we'll do like. I think we have to put "Gimme Shelter" into my top three. Okay. We ha- we have to put um, "Thin Thin Blue Line" into my top three, um, and then I would say, oh man, maybe. Well, what were what were you going to say? What was your going to guess going to be? I thought maybe salesman would be in there. But well, I so I debated. I debated sales. I always debate between salesman, gimme shelter, and Grey Gardens. You know, right. and I was introduced to the Maisel's work through um, through Gimme Shelter, and so it became sort of a first love. Right. And and you know, but yet salesman is a masterpiece um, of the human condition. You know, yeah, and, and so. Well, it's funny because I remember the first time I saw it, it opened my, that was the one that opened my eyes to the power of the documentary experience as an audience. Like you could really put me somewhere that I've never been, show totally. me a side of a human being in a life. And and again, to speak to this film is like, we lived this thing, many of us, as it happened in real time, we had our own perspective and opinions as fans of a sport, really. Yeah. And then you're, but this this story, the way you tell it, puts us in a different angle in the experience of players who, you know, we didn't know this way and how they lived it and experienced it. So I think that that, you know, it's in there, it's baked into what you did, but it's always the the power of the doc, right? At its best. Uh, th- I mean, thank you so much. And, and I super appreciate you recognizing that. And, and like I said, I had such a great team to help me achieve that, but that's exactly what we were going after. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad, <laughs> glad we had a chance to do this. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'm excited for it to be out there and in the world. I'm excited for people to talk about it too, because yeah, you know, like the thing, Last Dance is fun, um, but it it lacks for me. <laughs> it lacks the hey, what's the story that the doc is telling me that's not what I've seen presented yeah. through the media I know. And what I loved about this was going into uh, taking me into a side of it and and blowing it up that I had an experience, perspective, and, and an angle. So. Awesome, man. All right. Thank you so much. much. Yeah, appreciate it. So that was our interview with Michael Jacobs on Blackball on Quibi. Be sure to check it out. It's coming soon. Um, Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know what you think. What are your favorite documentaries? I'm always curious to know. You know, a documentary is a version of the truth. Sometimes they present themselves as an actual truth, but more often than not, we can see that it's a perspective and how that perspective is crafted is always interesting. And in this case, I think Michael Jacobs and the team behind Blackball did a really good job trying to get at the experience that the players were having during this time. Uh, But there's a lot of different ways to do it. And that's one of the great things about documentary filmmaking. Um, If you're interested in some other great content, we have, of course, the How to Write a Screenplay ebook available for free on nofilmschool.com. All you have to do is sign up for the newsletter and you'll get it. It's over 100 pages. It's completely free. And it's filled with information about writing. Um, You can write your screenplay in 10 weeks using this ebook. Um, and it's filled with infographics and tips and all sorts of great stuff. And we're really excited about it. Um, other great stuff happening on the site. We're rolling out a lot of cool features and we will have more on the podcast. Of course, check in on our weekly podcast where we round up all the news happening in the filmmaking world, 
where people are shooting, what they're shooting, how they're shooting in this coronavirus era. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.